Hey guys, welcome to my podcast. Yay, it's finally here. I know you guys have been waiting for so long and I have re-recorded this and re-recorded this over and over again and I finally talked to one of my girlfriends about it and she's like, girl, you just gotta put it out. Like, that's the beauty behind it. It's not gonna be perfect. You just gotta put it out there. And she's right. So without further ado, my name is Christina. I've been a nurse since 2015. One of the most interesting roles I had as a nurse was being a forensic nurse, which I truly enjoyed. However, it can be emotionally and mentally exhausting. In order to pursue a better work-life balance, I had to leave forensic nursing. So I made that choice. Since then, I've been working in critical care. During this transition, I began to notice issues in healthcare that a lot of people were not talking about. My hope is that I can highlight these issues in each episode and we can potentially change things. If not, I'm at least helping you by talking about a topic that maybe you were clueless about. In addition, in each episode, I will reveal a shocking case in healthcare where a healthcare worker has been a perpetrator or a victim of crime. So join me, a former forensic nurse, as I expose the cunning roles healthcare workers have in mayhem, murder, and mystery. In today's episode, I want to reveal the shocking case of Annie Lay. Before I get started, I want you to know, audience discretion is advised This case does include rape, and it includes homicide, so there will be some graphic details. I found Annie Lay's case one night when I was up watching the Discovery Channel and Forensic Files. Annie Lay was a pharmacology student at Yale University who suddenly vanished into thin air. Before diving into the incident that shattered a community, I want to give you an idea of who Annie was. Annie Lay was born to Huang Lay and Vivian Van Lay in the summer of 1985. 1985 in America looked very different from the America we know now. The average cost of a new home was $89,330. It was July 3rd, 1985, when Annie's family would welcome her into this world. As time progressed, it became very prevalent that Annie was a gifted scholar. She attended Union Mine High School in El Dorado, California, where she surpassed her classmates in exam scores. She graduated first in her class, of course, and was voted most likely to be the next Einstein. Through dedication and pure intellectual strength, Annie filled out 120 college scholarship applications, and her hard work paid off because she was able to gather $160,000 in scholarship money. She used this money to attend the University of Rochester in New York, and that's where she graduated with a degree in cell developmental biology and medical anthropology. While attending school here, Annie also won a fellowship with the National Institute of Health and the National Science Foundation. She was a very gifted woman. While she was attending the University of Rochester, she also met her future fiancé, Jonathan Wadoski. At a memorial held after Annie's death, Jonathan's sister would describe the couple as being the best of friends and being the light of one another's lives. 
Janet Wadoski, Annie's soon-to-be mother-in-law, described Annie as a unique and special person. She said, Annie was a passionate young scientist who wanted to save the world. Tara Bancroft, a fellow graduate student, even exclaimed, I don't know anyone else who could wear five-inch heels while doing laborious mouth surgery, eat fried chicken, and not gain an ounce, and use smiley faces in her presentation and not lose the respect of her audience. Annie clearly had a larger-than-life type of personality, and her personality was much larger than she was. Annie was roughly 90 pounds and 4 foot 11 inches tall. She was dedicated to a cause, and her desire to heal the sick is what brought her to Yale University. It was here where Annie would study for a PhD in pharmacology. Her research there on Abstad Street was focused on cancer research. In addition, Annie applied her expertise in cell developmental biology to evaluate diabetes. She was using her skills to study how certain fatty acids regulated an enzyme believed to be involved in cellular metabolism. Annie's goal was to understand if that particular enzyme was related to metabolic disease. And one day, just like any other day, Annie began her morning commute. Like all her other workdays, she took the Yale Transit to campus and she arrived at Sterling Hall. She walked then to 10 Amstad Street, where she would enter her research laboratory and would never be seen again. On September 8th, 2009, around 9 p.m., Annie's roommate called the police. She was worried. Annie wasn't answering her phone. She hadn't had any sense of contact with her since earlier in the day and it was very unlike Annie. Most police forces don't genuinely go looking for somebody who's 24 and just goes missing for a few hours. However, based on the family's concern and roommate's concern, they knew that this was out of character for Annie. And then they found out that she was going to be wed in five days. So many thought, was this a case of cold feet? Or was this genuinely a missing person? Now, anybody who had talked to Annie about her wedding date would know she would be beaming from ear to ear. The other thing is she was already starting to sign her name with her new last name. So they knew that she was excited to be getting married. Her wedding date was a day she looked forward to. There was no evidence that she wanted out of this relationship. And like normal, they went ahead and questioned Jonathan, and he was ruled out as a suspect in the very beginning of the case. Considering how out of character this was, and let me add, when they investigated Annie's office, her phone, her purse, her credit cards, everything was left in her office. It was like she literally vanished into thin air, like she just disappeared, like, and she was gone. It didn't make sense. Ironically, Yale is no stranger to crime. In December of 1998, Susan Joven, a Yale senior's body, was found stabbed to death in a neighborhood not far from campus. To this day, that case has yet to be solved. Was there a repeat offender on the loose? Or was this simply a woman who needed to take a break? 
So the search for Annie was on. I think police officers were genuinely concerned the moment that they found her belongings still in her office. It's just odd for someone to go missing and they don't take their car keys, they don't take their cell phone with them, they don't take their credit cards. That's weird. Nobody does that. It's really hard for you to go anywhere and not leave a trail. The other interesting thing about where Annie worked is the research facility that she worked at. In order to get into the building, you needed to have badge access. Nobody could walk into the building without that access. So you needed to be some type of researcher or employee. And like I had stated already, Jonathan had been ruled out at this point. So what investigators did is they used the cameras to look for Annie. The day that Annie went missing, there was actually a fire alarm that went off. They observed up to 75 cameras, I believe, that they had available. And they observed the footage and they couldn't see Annie leaving once. So they assumed that by this time frame, she had already been missing. On Sunday, September 13th, an employee complained about a foul odor coming from one of the bathrooms in a basement laboratory. Investigators found Annie's body stuffed in a cable chase inside the wall of a basement laboratory across from a bathroom. They investigated the body at this point and they found that Annie had a broken jawbone, a broken clavicle, and she had been raped. So they ended up doing a post-mortem rape kit on Annie and they did find DNA. They gathered this DNA and they put it in CODIS. CODIS is known as the Combined DNA Index System. There are over 3 million DNA profiles in CODIS right now. The people who get their DNA put in CODIS are typically sexual offenders, and I believe now they have extended it in California at least to violent offenders as well. It is a great tool for forensics because they can get a DNA profile from somebody, put it in CODIS, and compare it to that DNA profile that was found on them. And this is what they did with Annie. Unfortunately, this offender, this person who is responsible for this crime, did not have their DNA in CODIS. So it was not somebody who had committed a violent sexual crime before. Of note, one thing that they found with Annie's body was a green pen, which puzzled investigators because it was somewhat irrelevant. However, that green pen would turn out to surprise investigators in the future. They did do their due diligence in analyzing the green pen for DNA evidence as well, and they did get a hit off of this green pen. They ran the DNA in CODIS, and they found that, unfortunately, the profile that it was linked to, that gentleman had been deceased for some time prior to Annie's death. So it was just a coincidence. But the green pen stuck around for some time. When science couldn't come to the conclusion, investigators digged deeper, and they turned to the keypad system. They analyzed the keypad system. They found that a particular employee had increased movements around Annie's laboratory the day that she went missing. And that person was Raymond Clark III. Clark had a prior history with police. He did have a domestic dispute. But other than that, he had a clean record. It also puzzled investigators because he was so curious about her investigation. I believe he did end up confessing to the crime. 
they had evidence showing him leaving the building after a fire alarm went off. And this was the moment, too, where they noticed Annie hadn't gone out of the building. And the footage caught him as he was crossing the street. He crossed the street from the university and he sat on some steps and the video camera pans to him. It's just like a perfect picture of security footage looking straight at him and he's sitting there on the steps with his head between his knees, clearly panicked, distraught, not right. Something about him in that camera footage wasn't right. When investigators looked at his movements in the building, they found that he kept going from laboratory G13 to a storage closet. G13 was the laboratory that Annie was in. Investigators theorized that Clark noticed Annie was in her laboratory alone and he saw an opportunity. He assaulted her and then when he realized what he had done, and he realized he couldn't cover it up. He murdered her and then went to the storage closet to grab a rolling cart and disposed of his dirty blue scrubs. They did end up finding these scrubs in a soiled utility bag and the scrubs had semen on them and blood stains. He then took Annie's body to the cable chase where he stuffed it behind the wall in a basement bathroom and investigators poured all this information and evidence out right in front of him and Clark confessed. The green pen was also significant because Clark would sign in and out of the building oftentimes with a green pen. So the day that Annie went missing, he signed in with a green pen. When he left, he signed out with a black pen. To this day, Clark has not said why he did it. There's no real link to Annie and Clark. And this is kind of why I wanted to tell this story because it captivated me. Here is this woman who's so bright and so intellectually gifted and she has this ability to potentially change the world. And she just goes to work one day doing her job happy to do her job, loving her life, and all of a sudden this person just takes that from her and destroys her family and her future. The university is no stranger to these occurrences. Just this year, Yale University announced the death of another student who was shot and killed, Kevin Zhang. That investigation is still ongoing. I must say I'm not insinuating in any shape or form guilt on Yale University's part or guilt on the state of Connecticut's part. I'm simply just trying to highlight an issue that involves working in the workplace and workplace violence and sexual assault. These issues can happen anywhere, even in your workplace. And for the record, the case filed against Yale was settled for reported $3 million. But Annie's father refused to accept the money and was quoted saying that he just wanted to move on from this tragedy. In the same year of Annie's death, in 2009, Alicio Santos, an 80-year-old male of Las Vegas, shot and killed Dr. Edna Mukbanta in a murder-suicide after filing a complaint against the physician. Edna was born in the Philippines and found success working in internal medicine. A year later, in 2010, at John Hopkins Hospital, Warren Pardis shot Dr. David Cohen in the abdomen. Dr. David Cohen would survive his injuries, Cohen had been operating on Pardis's mother. Pardis was distraught after receiving a not-so-happy update, and he shot Dr. Cohen. Pardis then entered his mother's bedside, 
and shot her in the head before turning the gun on himself. Pardis had no previous criminal or mental health history. Years later, in 2013, another case would shake our nation. Jason Letts would enter a hospital in Birmingham, Alabama, and open fire in a cardiac unit. He was dissatisfied with the care his wife was receiving. He injured three people before he was shot and killed by police. Within that same year, in 2013, a urologist in Newport Beach was shot eight times by a patient. The killer was 75-year-old Stanwood Fred Elkis. He shot Dr. Ronald Franklin Gilbert. He was angered by a botched prostate surgery that had happened 20 years prior. After the incident, it was discovered that Dr. Gilbert had nothing to do with that procedure. In the fall of 2014, Margaret Passari began seeing Dr. Michael Davidson. Ms. Passari had an extensive cardiac history. She smoked cigarettes for decades and had a quadruple bypass in 2002. In the summer of 2014, though, her cardiac troubles started all over again. Shortly after, she would meet Dr. Davidson and would need a valve repair in her heart, which is a surgical specialty Dr. Davidson performs, and he performed it very well. But after the surgery, Dr. Davidson would sign out on Marguerite. She would then be getting discharged from that facility and would do pretty well until she would have issues breathing. So she was admitted back to a different hospital known as St. Vincent Hospital because she had fluid in her lungs. This would end up leading to intubation. However, after some time of being intubated, the team spoke to the family about end-of-life care. They had ended up taking Marguerite off life support, and Stephen, her son, was very distraught. But then he calmed. However, the days after his mother's death, he would go on to blame Dr. Davidson. One of the medications Dr. Davidson prescribed Marguerite was a medication called amiodarone. And Stephen, for some reason, was extremely set that this medication is the reason his mother died. There's no link to amiodarone and the issues that this patient's mother experienced during her care at St. Vincent. However, in the days after his mother's death, he'd go on to blame Dr. Davidson for his mother's troubles. Stephen arrived to Dr. Davidson's office near Brigham and Women's Hospital and demanded to see him. He shot and killed him, and then he turned the gun on himself. A year later, in January of 2015, in El Paso, Jerry Serrato gunned down a psychologist at a VA clinic. Serrato was upset after being denied a PTSD claim. It would come to light that the doctor he targeted had no role in the decision. Serato also took his life that day. Hospital shootings are now a common monthly occurrence throughout the United States. Between 2000 and 2005, an average of nine hospital shootings occurred each year. However, five years later, it would increase to more than 16 shootings a year, causing roughly 161 deaths. I want to inform you guys that workplace violence has only been recognized as an issue in healthcare since the 1970s, and it would take 23 years for it to become a part of legislature. 
1993, California would be one of the first states to enact workplace violence laws by passing the California Hospital and Security Act. This law requires workplace violence prevention programs are established in the acute care and psychiatric settings. New York, Connecticut, and even New Jersey would not pass similar laws until 2009 and 2011. And that in itself is astonishing because I was always told that the East Coast is kind of where all the research starts and then it kind of makes its way across to the West Coast. I know that this topic is probably a really sensitive topic for a lot of people to hear, but I want you guys to know that you're valued and you deserve to go into a workplace and feel safe. I do advise you to know your laws, know your hospital policies, know who to talk to and who you can speak to about these issues. And I think that by creating a topic of discussion around this issue, we can at least be advocates for healthier workplace environments. And I think that that's so important. We spend a major part of our life in the workplace. It needs to be a happy environment. It needs to be a good environment. And it can be challenging, of course, when you're dealing with so much stress. But there are ways to make it better. The other thing I urge you all to do is to reach out to legislators in your area and speak to them on these issues. I wish I had more advice to give about this topic, but the other issues that really bring about workplace violence is, of course, emotional issues that maybe involve loss of a loved one. When we're dealing with life and death situations, it's really important to handle them with an outsider's perspective. If that was your loved one, or if that was your child, if that was your family member, how would you be reacting? We often don't talk about end-of-life care until it's too late. It's not an easy topic to confront, and it's not something that we sit around and chat about at the dinner table, right? Research does show that it is helpful to have loved ones at the bedside when you are withdrawing care. However, it can be stressful for them, so ensuring that they have the proper support is also necessary too. I really appreciate your ears this evening, and I hope you all are doing well, and I hope that maybe this has brought light to a serious issue that you really weren't aware about. It is hard being a medical provider in today's world, and it's hard being a healthcare worker in today's world. In my next episode, I will be discussing healthcare workers who botch, and I hope that I can bring a special guest on board. So I'll see you guys then. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great evening. See you next time for some more murder, mayhem, and medical mystery. Oh my goodness, how could I forget? I'm so sorry, guys. Before you go, I need to shout out the people who have made this podcast possible. In order to promote this podcast and raise money for the things that I actually need, like i.e. soundproofing this room, like for instance, you are probably hearing my snoring senior dog in the background miss tay tay she's a very tired girl don't judge her i do need to soundproof this room if you're interested in supporting my podcast go to my instagram at do no harm take no shit podcast go to the link tree in my about me section click there and scroll down to modere wellness when you click on that banner you will be sent directly to my modere shop where you can purchase a product of your liking to support this podcast and make all of my future dreams possible at least i hope so if not you're getting some great products if you happen to have a remarkably frightening story in healthcare as a healthcare worker or just an observer 
please email me at do no harm take no shit podcast at gmail.com all interactions will remain anonymous i would also love to hear from people who may be having a difficult time in healthcare. if you're a new nurse and you're struggling feel free to also email me and remember the best way to prevent these incidences from occurring is to report suspicious activity if there is something that concerns you or worries you speak up about it and i know sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's going to the right person maybe you don't want to approach particular person about it, but there are other people who are willing to listen in the workplace. We need to make this a safe environment for everybody. That's all for tonight. I gotta get some beauty sleep.